Hi friends, Pastor Dave here, Cedar Mill Bible Church, and it's great to see you. Today, we are continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at chapters 5 through 7 in this new series that we're calling Sex, Suits, Spouses, and Singles. It's going to be an exciting series, and yet you may have already figured out from the title that the subjects we'll be addressing throughout are going to be a little bit for mature audiences. And I say that because if you are watching at home with your children, you may want to at least do a preview before you all sit down and take in the sermons in this series together. Now, I also want to say that one of the reasons that we open the scriptures and walk through books of the Bible straight through is because it forces us to sometimes discuss things that we might be tempted to skip. I might have been tempted to skip 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but, but because we're engaging this book and walking through these verses, we are going to learn some wonderful things about insidious sin and what it looks like to deal with it in the family of God, in the church. So today I'm going to do my best to communicate God's heart in this passage, and I'm asking you, right where you're at, to open your heart, to open your mind, and ask God to meet you, touch you, challenge you, change you through his word today. We're going to dive in. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. All right, sounds exciting. Sounds weird, a little crazy. I'm wondering what this has to do with us. Let's get to it. First of all, I I want you to know that these five verses are part of a larger 13-verse section. The entirety of chapter 5 is one whole chunk. Today we're dealing with verses 1 through 5. Next week is part 2. We'll look at verses 6 through 13. And that's really my way of saying you need to be here next week. If you just listen today, you're going to miss the wrap-up of everything. You'll only get part of the story. And so make sure you tune in next week. Today, however, in these first five verses, Paul is going to answer a few questions for us. And here they are. One, what is happening here? What is happening in this church? Two, how should we feel about it? Three, what should we do about it? And four, what is the goal of our action? What's happening? How should we feel? What should we do? And what's the goal? Let's get going. What is happening in this church? Some crazy stuff. We learned right away in verse one that there is open sexual immorality occurring. 
The word for sexual immorality here is the word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. And it's actually a general term, kind of an overarching term in Greek that has to do with all sexual activity that happens outside of God's plan for sex to be shared in marriage between a husband and a wife. Anything out of that context is considered pornea, sexual immorality. And yet Paul doesn't leave it general. In our passage today, he gets specific about the sexual immorality he's talking about. He says, in your midst, in your church family is this, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, if you're like me, you're going, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Isn't isn't that his mother? No, it's not. A man is sleeping with his father's wife is actually the Bible's way of saying, dad got remarried and this is stepmom. And sleeping with your stepmom is something that is forbidden all throughout scripture. You can go back, you can look it up, you can find it several places, even in the Old Testament. Now, again, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, don't sleep with your stepmom. Duh. Do we, do we really have to lay it out? Do we really have to have rules for something like this? Isn't it obvious that sleeping with your stepmom is always and most certainly a bad decision? Well, yes and no. You see, every society has certain sins that become a temptation because of what is happening in that culture. In every society, if, if you stood back and looked from a distance, you'd say, well, that's obviously not right, and that's obviously wrong. And yet, because of societal circumstances, those obviously wrong things would still be a temptation. Think about it for a minute. I'll give you an example from, from our world, from our society, our culture. Because of technology... Because of computers and cell phones and advertising and television and the internet, pornography is a huge temptation in our world. In 21st century America, pornography is a billion dollar industry and it's a much greater temptation today for us right now in 2021 than it was even just 30 years ago. Why? Because some specific things about the world we live in have changed. Now we all have cell phones. Now we all have internet access. There's a much greater and easier access to pornography. And so it's suddenly a much greater temptation. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have cell phones or the internet, but they did have a situation that was much more common for them than maybe it is for us. Here it is. A wife would die. Maybe she would die in labor, a much higher occurrence back then than now. Or or perhaps a couple would get divorced. And then dad would certainly, in the ancient world, remarry. And often, an older, widowed, or divorced man would marry again, and he would marry a much younger woman. Right or wrong, good or bad, we're not debating that today. It's just what would happen. And so this woman, this new wife of dad, would be very close in age to dad's oldest children, sometimes his oldest son. And so now you get the picture. You're a teenage boy or a young adult male with hormones raging through your body. And dad's pretty new young wife is suddenly living with you. Dot, dot, dot. 
don't sleep with your stepmom. It was a bigger temptation for them then than it is for even us now. So again, this is like a duh. Of course not. But in the ancient world, it was something they had to deal with. And because of that, they actually had laws. They had rules against this kind of behavior. We notice here that Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Even non-believers, even those outside the church do not tolerate. What Paul is talking about here is the fact that even in Greece, even in the city of Corinth, which was one of the most sexually promiscuous cities in the history of the entire world. We'll get into that more later in this series, but believe me, it's true. Even in Corinth, it was not acceptable to sleep with your stepmom. In fact, it was a taboo. There was a law on the books and the punishment in Greece for sleeping with your father's wife was banishment to an island forever. Now, if you can kind of pick, it's kind of a weird punishment, but if you picture Greece, there are all these, you know, thousands of tiny little rock islands scattered all throughout the Mediterranean. And so the punishment for, for sleeping with your father's wife, your stepmom, was that you'd be banished to one of these little teeny rock islands to live in isolation and then certainly die there alone. Here's the point. Even for the pagans, this was a real serious offense. But most concerning to Paul is this. It's happening in the church and it's happening out in the open, just blatantly and and shamelessly. He says, it is actually reported. The Greek here means it's common knowledge. It's words going around. Everybody knows this. It's an ongoing thing that everyone's aware of. He said, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. That phrase, again, in the original language, is in the present tense. And that means this. This was not a one-time accidental thing. This is a relationship that's been happening, that's still happening, that is ongoing, that's a permanent situation. It's something the person has decided to continue to engage. That is what's happening in this Corinthian church. A lifestyle of sin is being openly and unrepentantly embraced. Question two, how should we feel about it? How should they feel about it as as the church then? How should we feel about it now? Um, Here's what Paul says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Verse two, and you are proud. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? One of the things that we need to recognize about this passage is that Paul's chief concern here is not that there is sin in the church, but that the church doesn't seem to care. Paul's not saying, oh no, there's a sinner in your midst. He's saying, don't you care that there is open sin in your midst? One scholar I read this week said it this way, it wasn't so much, that the, it wasn't so much the sin that shocked Paul, it was the church's toleration of it. That's what has Paul on his heels. You'll notice he says, 
and you're proud. And you're, so it's like an accusation. And you're proud. He's not necessarily saying here, by the way, that, that they're proud of the sin. They're not proud of this guy. They're not proud of what's happening in this situation. What he's saying here is, and, and you're so proud of your church. You're so quick to boast and to brag about your fellowship and about your community, about the gifts that you have and the talents amongst you. You're so quick to be high on yourselves and on the eloquence of the teaching that's happening in your, in your fellowship. And yet, and yet, even with all this good stuff where you're focused, you're unwilling to give time and attention to dealing with ongoing destructive sin in your midst. Notice Paul says, shouldn't you rather have gone in to mourning? Instead of being proud, instead of being high on yourself, shouldn't you be grieved? You're proud, but you should be mourning. You're boasting and bragging, but you should be heartbroken. The word for mourning here is actually the same word for grief, the kind of grief a person has when a family member or loved one dies. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying we should care so much about the well-being of brothers and sisters and the sacredness of the church that ongoing sin in our body should literally break our hearts. It should deeply disturb us and it should certainly grab our attention. The problem for these First Corinthian, uh, First Corinthian Christians and quite frankly, most likely the problem for you and me most of the time is that we don't, actually love the church enough. We don't love the church enough to care. We don't love our family members enough to be grieved. And so instead of mourning, we minimize. Instead of giving attention, we downplay sin. And maybe another reason for this is that we don't really understand, we haven't really grasped the destruction of ongoing sin in our church communities. And we'll talk more about this next week. But Paul is saying here, if you really cared, if you really understood, you would not be able to tolerate what's happening. Love wouldn't let you. You would be devastated. You would be brokenhearted. You see, friends, sin always wants to convince us to do two things, to justify and to tolerate. Sin always in our lives and in the lives of others, it always wants to say, justify me or tolerate me. Sin always wants to tell us when sin's in our life or when we notice it in someone we love, sin always wants to say, it's not that bad. It's no big deal. It's probably okay. You, you deserve it. It may, not, it may not be right in every case, but in this case, there are extenuating circumstances. Sin wants to say stuff like, just one more time, just for a little while. No one has to know. And who are they to judge you anyway? To justify and to tolerate is always what sin wants to do. And friends, this is why we need the church. This is why we need the church to speak truth into our lives when sin wants to lie to our souls. Let me ask you this today. Just a couple questions to think on and reflect on. 
Do you care enough about this church family? If you're a part of Cedar Mill Bible Church, if this is your church home, your church family, do you care enough about this church family? Do you care enough about the people in this body? Do you care enough about our gospel mission and witness in the world to not just look away when a brother or sister is heading down the path of sin? Because tolerance, tolerance to just tolerate people, to just put up with people, to just put up with sin, to just turn a blind eye and say it's none of my business and live and let live and who am I to judge? That's the mantra of our culture. That's what our culture will constantly and consistently call us to do. But that is not who we are called to be in the church. To be in the church, to be in the family of God means in this family, in the family, my business is your business and your business is my business. Now, some of you are like, I just, I just, I just like Cedar Mill Bible Church because, you know, I enjoyed the music or, or the sermons were decent. Um, they do a good video production. That's why I'm here. Well, friends, that's, that's all right. But if you really want to become a part of the church, you need to understand this. You're stepping into a family. And in a family, my business is your business and your business is my business. The goal of God's family is not tolerance, not learn to tolerate one another, but transformation. We get in each other's lives with the goal that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, disclaimer. This is one of those sermons that needs a disclaimer, probably a few, but here's one of them. Some of you need to hear this. I am not suggesting that we turn into the morality police here at Cedar Mill Bible. This is not me like turning you loose. Go out now and start sin sleuthing the snot out of the people in our body so that you can find out their sins and turn them into the elders for spiritual discipline. No. Some of you will be tempted to do this. You, I mean, we know who you are. Don't do it. I am, I'm not saying to do that. I'm not saying turn into the sin police. I am saying, though, that we must love one another and we must love this body enough to be brokenhearted when sin takes root in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. So how should we feel in that moment? How should we feel when we see sin taking hold of a brother or sister? Grieved. We should mourn. It should break our hearts. Next question, what should we do? Put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. All right, let's talk about what Paul is saying here because this passage is intense. This passage does not feel like how the American church normally or usually operates. And let me tell you this, this passage is not saying if someone is sinning in the church, we should boot them out. Not the message. If that were the case, there would be no church. This passage, when Paul writes these words, he assumes, this passage assumes a Matthew 18 type process has or will happen. Paul's assuming that a man's friends will have talked to him about his sin. 
that a group of people will have approached him and challenged him already, that the church's leadership has gotten involved and called for there to be an end to this relationship. And yet, and yet this man continues, he goes on in this relationship, unrepentant in his sin. But this passage assumes that a Matthew 18 process is happening. And so now the question comes, what do we do? What do we do in this moment when there is no turning away from, when there is no change in behavior, when there is a stubborn spirit that says, I'll do whatever I want to do. Paul says this, put out of your fellowship. He says, this person must be removed from the church. They must be taken out of the body. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Dave. I mean, that doesn't seem right. I mean, isn't this the person, this person we're talking about, isn't this the person that needs the church the most? Isn't this person who's trapped in sin, don't they need the church? Don't they need to be in church, not out of church? I mean, didn't Jesus himself say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners? Isn't the famous phrase true, that the church is to be a hospital for sinners and not a hotel for saints? Yes, absolutely, 100% yes. Because we are all sinners. All of us are sinners who need the saving, sanctifying work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That is who we are in the church. And God offers us that saving, sanctifying power in his church as part of his body, his bride who he died for. However, wouldn't you also say that if someone were to check into a hospital and they had a deadly disease and they're in the hospital and, and the staff says to this person, we have the cure. Let us give you the remedy. Let us heal you. And the nurses talk to him and the doctors talk to him and even the church administration gets involved and yet the person still says this, I don't want to be treated. I, I, I don't want the remedy. I am totally fine just living with this disease. If that were to happen in a hospital, what would be the next step? The hospital would discharge them. The hospital would release them. The hospital would say, we're here for people who want treatment. If you don't want treatment, you have to go. Hear me on this, friends. The church is not a place that we go to simply make friends and hear inspiring religious messages. The church is a family of believers who are being sanctified together as they proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world in desperate need of redeeming grace. I'm going to say that again. The church is a family of believers who are being sanctified together as they proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world desperately in need of redeeming grace. Around here we say it this way. Becoming like Jesus and making him known. That's the mission of our church here at Cedar Mill Bible. Becoming like Jesus and making him known. And it I love it. I love that statement. And, and it does. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? But let me tell you this. It's not easy. Becoming like Jesus sometimes involves people in this body telling you there's sin in your life that needs to go. 
Becoming like Jesus together sometimes means that I have to go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, I believe you're heading down the wrong path. I see some stuff in your life and I don't think it pleases the Lord. And friends, when people refuse to take correction and turn from their sin, here's what, here's what the scriptures say. After they've been talked to and, and approached and challenged, they need to be discharged. They need to be discharged from the hospital. And Paul says, that's not my command. Paul says, that's not, that's not my idea. I didn't just come up with this on my own. He says, I offer it to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. It's his church. It's not my church, Paul says. It's, Cedar Mill Bible Church is not my church. I'm, I'm the pastor here. I'm called to serve here. I'm here to serve this church as the pastor. But this isn't my church. This is Jesus' church. And this is what Jesus says. Paul is saying when he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, he's saying, these are Jesus' thoughts, not my thoughts. Jesus signs his name to this statement, to this idea. He endorses this decision. Why? Why does Jesus say that when people are living in ongoing, outright, unrepentant sin and they refuse to turn from it, they refuse to repent, they should be discharged from his church? Why would Jesus say that? What's his goal here? What's the end game? Well, there are actually a couple of goals. There are actually a few reasons why this happens. We're going to talk about more of them next week, but I'm going to give you the first one today, uh, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, because again, it's his church, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. All right. Hand this man over to Satan. What is Paul saying here? I mean, Satan, this is my buddy Jim. Um, he's having an affair. I've talked to him about it. Others have chatted with him, the elders and such. He refuses to change. So just wanted to introduce you guys. He's all yours now. I mean, what, what do you mean hand him over to Satan? Let's talk about it. Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the Flesh And that word flesh in this passage, it's a key word. It's an important word. In Greek, it's the word sarks. And sarks, the flesh in the scriptures, describes that part of you that likes sin. That part of you that's drawn to sin. That part of you that's bent away from doing what's right and drawn to doing the things that you ought not do. You got that part in you and I've got that part in me. Sometimes sin for me looks real tempting. Sometimes I really want to say that piece of gossip that I know I shouldn't say. And yet it, it looks so, so enticing. Sometimes I want to do that thing. I know God wouldn't want me to do, but there's something inside of me. There's this part of me, this fleshy, sarksy part of me that is just drawn to sin. That's the word that Paul uses here. And we all have it. We all have sarks. We all have this fallen, broken part of us. And yet, as followers of Jesus, Scripture tells us that we've also been given the Spirit God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what draws us to what is good and what is right and what is honoring and noble and true. 
the Holy Spirit, while Sarks wants to lead us towards sin, the Holy Spirit is pulling us and drawing us away from sin. And friends, here's the truth. In the church, one of the goals of the church, one of the main reasons for the church is that in the body of Christ, the flames of the Holy Spirit are fanned in your life. They're sort of like the embers of this Holy Spirit's work in your soul are sort of blown, blown like, with, with the, like when you blow on a fire and the embers burst into flame. That's what should be happening in the church. In the church, you're reminded and you're encouraged and you're held accountable to walk in step with the Spirit and allow God to kill the desires of sarks in your life. But when, when you're not in the church, when you're outside the family of God and you're just out there as part of this world, the, the Bible says the prince of this world, the kind of the ruler of this realm, this fallen, broken place called the world where we live, is a guy named Satan. And Satan will do everything in his power to do the opposite of the Holy Spirit. Satan will not fan the flames of the Spirit. Satan will fan the flames of sarks in your life. He will blow on the embers of temptation and he will fan the flames of your flesh. Satan will do anything he can to convince you to dive into and embrace the desires of your sinful nature. That's the path he longs for your life to follow. And friends, when we do that, when we follow that path, when, when we, we follow the lead of Satan and we walk down the path of the flesh, the end result is always the same thing. Devastation. Sin, when fully embraced, it might feel good for a time. It might feel good even for a season. But in the end, it always, every single time, leads to pain, suffering, tragedy, destruction, and emptiness. That's where that road goes always. And so Paul here is saying this. He's saying, if someone in your church family is bound and determined to live a life of sin, then let them go live it to the full. Turn them over to the prince of this world, to the sultan of Sarks, with the hopes, with the hopes, with the prayer, and with the desire that when the inevitable happens and they hit rock bottom, that in that moment when they realize that this path that they've been on leads to nothing but emptiness, that they'll remember grace, that they'll remember blessing, that they'll remember the life and joy and hope and peace and satisfaction of walking with Jesus in the family of God and they will repent. They'll reject their sin and they'll turn away from Satan and they will choose the love of a father who longs for them to come home to him. You see, friends, the goal of confronting sin is never to make people pay. It's not to just make them feel bad and make ourselves feel holy and righteous. It's never about like, you sinned and now I want you to know it. No, the goal of confronting people with their sin is never to make them pay. It's a loving desire for people to repent, that they may have life and have it to the full. Life with Jesus, life in the church, life in God's family. That is our heart here at Cedar Mill. And so with that, church, let's pray together. Would you pray with me just for a minute?
Father, today, as we think about this passage um, and the destructive nature of sin, we confess together, Lord, far too often we don't take sin seriously enough. Far too often, Lord, we allow it to hang around in our lives and we don't understand what the enemy really wants to use it for in you and me. Father, we confess that to you. And right now, Lord, I just want to create some space for for us as a people to turn our eyes to you and to just ask you, Holy Spirit, would you reveal anything in our minds and hearts, God, that we need to confess? Would you reveal sin that's living in us right now? Are there any patterns of sin that are developing in our lives? Are there any habits of sin that that are starting to take root in us, God? Would you show those to us? And then would you give us the courage to just confess those to you, to just repent before you, Lord, before anyone from our church family even needs to say a word to us? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? And would we repent and turn to you and, and just give that sin back and say, I don't want that sarks, Father. Would you just reveal any of those places to us now? And then, Father, I also pray today that as a church family, after examining ourselves, after looking at our own lives, we just ask this question, is there anyone else in our, in our body, in our church family, who is maybe walking down a dangerous path right now? And we're just asking, God, is there anyone that you need us to just go and speak to in love with a tender heart, with care and concern for that person and just say, hey, I just need to ask some questions. I I see your life moving down a path that seems dangerous, that might be heading towards something that's not of the Lord. God, is there someone in our lives that maybe we've just been tempted to tolerate or to ignore, to push it aside, and yet your Holy Spirit right now is saying, I'm brokenhearted, I need you to be brokenhearted. God, would you bring that person to mind? And then, God, would you give us the courage to have that conversation, that it would be covered with grace, that it would be in just the right way and at just the right moment. And God, my prayer is that these kind of conversations wouldn't be rare, that they would be happening in our body all the time because we are a place where we're not just coming to church to consume, but where we are the church, where we are a family and where we get into each other's business so that we can grow to become the people that you long for us to be. Father, all these things and all the things that that you desire for us that are even unsaid at this point, that your spirit is praying on our behalf, we long for them. We agree with them. We pray it in Jesus' name. We say, Jesus, whatever you would endorse in what has been said today, may it be so. That's our prayer. Amen.